Hello there, welcome along to the Michael Castle Group podcast series. Luke Davis is my name, and I've got a very special guest with me today who I'll introduce you to in just a moment, but there's no doubt about it, is there? The Royal Edinburgh Military Tattoo is one of the most popular events in the world, dazzling millions of spectators over the years with its unique and stirring blend of military ceremony, music, and entertainment. Now, some of you may have been lucky enough to attend in person, either on the Esplanade there at the the Edinburgh Castle in Scotland, or one of their other special concerts here in Australia over the years. Many others would have seen the spectaculars on TV. They're often shown on New Year's Eve on the ABC. But a very, very exciting announcement from the Michael Castle Group recently, that the Royal Edinburgh Military Tattoo will be returning to Sydney in October 2019. There will be four performances, all at the magnificent ANZ Stadium here in Sydney, uh, from the Thursday, the 17th of October, until Saturday, the 19th of October, 2019. Tickets will go on sale in April 2019, but you can register today to go on the ticket wait list. It's open now. The website is edinburghtattoosydney.com.au. Make sure you do it. These shows always, always sell out, and you'd not want to miss out on this one. It is a big, big gig And the man responsible for putting it all together is the producer of the Royal Edinburgh Military Tattoo. His name is Brigadier David Olfrey, who I'm delighted to say sits alongside me. David, welcome back to Australia. How are you? This is very, very exciting indeed. It's it's an event, I suppose, on the scale of which Australians probably wouldn't have experienced before. It's a stunning show, this. I mean, I would say that, wouldn't I, as a chief executive producer? <laughs> but it, it's it's a great show. Uh, we've now done sixty nine years in Edinburgh. Started in in uh, in nineteen fifty, and just tremendous. Sold out in Edinburgh for the last twenty years. That's two hundred twenty thousand tickets over August every year. It is amazing. And uh, and now you know, looking to go abroad. Ever more vigorously, <laughs> every single year. And of course, Sydney, Sydney now, the first of the new run. It is the perfect fit. And we'll get down to the Sydney run a little bit later. But with these things, David, I like to go right back to the beginning. Because you mentioned that the first one, the first Edinburgh military tattoo, took place in 1950. How did it come to be? And, and what I, what was the purpose, I suppose? Well, the Edinburgh International Festival was conceived by the then Lord Provost, the mayor of, of Edinburgh. If you can imagine, Edinburgh has just come out along with the rest of Britain out of the end of the Second mm. World War. The privations, rationing is still in pause. And actually, life is is pretty miserable. And the Lord Provost thought he needed something to lift the spirits of the citizens of Edinburgh. And so he put on a show, 1947, mm. 1948 and 49, and in 50, um, the Royal Edinburgh Military II, or then as it was the Edinburgh Military II. That's right. Royal. Royal came later, yeah. didn't it? <laughs> um, you know, it was great. The military had trucks. They had benches. They had ways of making lots of cups of tea. And, of course, they had the military <laughs> bands and lots of other displays. Was it uh, primarily to to serve the military or to serve and entertain the public or a mixture of the two? No, very much about the public entertainment. Mm. And of course, the bands and so forth, you know, part of the military institution. So they had the music, they had the logistics, they had the manpower to to deliver that. Something about a soldier, it was called to start with, and uh, it's grown from that. What do we know about that first program and performance in 1950 and, and how much has it changed over the years? Um, a traditional program and it's re- remained mm. traditional all the way through. You can imagine the Scottish tunes, the Scottish regiments of which there yeah. were many more at that time. They had their pipe tunes, they had the military band, so very much military music um, that people had sort of got used to I guess from, from the military. Mm. Um, that program has really remained. Lots of the times now you'll find marches and so forth that have that have endured across all the changes of society, 
all the changes of trend and so forth over over those decades. Mm. But now, of course, we've we've got different instruments. We've got electronics. We've got clever computers, and we really can now start to innovate and change, not to alter the authenticity, but to be innovative at every turn. The term is it tattoo or tattoo? Which one should I be saying? <laughs> I don't, this is much debate around no, here. No, I, I I'd call it the Edinburgh tattoo. Tattoo. Yeah. Where because, does that that term come from? Well. In the 17th and 18th century, mercenaries from, from the British Isles were stationed in the Low Countries, in the Netherlands and, and, uh, and across in Europe. And they fight there for a variety of European masters. And, of course, the soldiers would be billeted mm-hmm. in the local towns. And every night, as is the way, the soldiers would make their way downtown <laughs> and they'd, uh, they'd have a, an exciting time and they'd drink too much and yes. burn a couple of caravans. And, <laughs> and you had to get them back to their barracks at the end of the night. And rather than send down policemen or officers, that was always going to end in tears, um, they would send a drummer downtown, and the drummer would play a simple drum tap, um, which in the old Dutch, do dem tap tu, which meant quite literally, turn off the taps. (laughs) It meant turn off the supply of booze, soldiers being very small brain, quickly lose attention, (laughs) and they drift back to their barracks without any drama. There you go. So that's the history of it. Can you put your finger on, I suppose, why it holds such mass appeal. It's an extraordinary genre because um, it it has managed to transcend the trends and all those societal differences. You can imagine, you know, what was happening in 1950, what's happening today. Mm. I think it is about the fact that people do like coming together. It's got a real sense of of internationalism. It's it's about local communities coming together. It's about sharing very, very fundamental values. If you, you look at the values of the military and you look at the values of civil society, they're, they're pretty strong stuff. And even now, those values will underpin how we operate in a really complicated world. And it is very complicated now. And I think people like mm-hmm. to have a banister rail. And I think the tattoo changes not so much, but it also changes a lot. And mm-hmm. I think that's a lovely mix, really. How important is the tattoo to the city of Edinburgh? Well, it's very important. We're one of 12 festivals in Edinburgh, mm. so um, those festivals have grown. So there's always a party on. There is always <laughs> a party. And uh, we're, you know, we're very lucky. We play with the castle as our backdrop. It's yeah. been there for 400 years. It's got an incredible atmosphere. So you make your way up through the old town of Edinburgh, you know, through the cobbled streets. You've got tall buildings either side of you. Um, all the other festivals are playing. We have festivals right across the year. Mm. Um, a certain number of us play in the summer. The Festival Fringe, of course, complete uh, madness going on in the middle of Edinburgh. We've got the International Festival, a little more sort of, you yes. know, a little more decorum. Um, and, the, and the Art Festival and the Book Festival, and there's many, many others. Most importantly, it's a great place for artists to come and, and, and show their wares mm-hmm. and for people to see them around the world. So there's a lovely sort of creative atmosphere. Um, they also, dare I say, bring a great deal into the Scottish economy. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're very proud. We bring in about 77 million pounds worth wow. every year of additionality and probably another, I suppose, about a 30 million or so in, in full-time employment. So that's important. And, you know, when you come to a city like Sydney, mm. um, it really does, not just people coming in from around the city, but traveling interstate and, and in the case of the tattoo here, probably internationally as well. 
I saw at the launch you, you were sprouting numbers like bringing 59,000 overnight visitors to Sydney alone and an estimated $37 million in visitor expenditure, which is nothing to be sneezed at for a city like Sydney. No, it's not. And, and you know, great cities like Sydney, and Sydney is a, it's an international hub. Mm. This is an extraordinary place. It's got people coming in, it's got people going out, and it's got coming, people coming through. So this is a really important international destination here. Um, any city of this size is looking to to attract mega events yeah. that will, whether they're rock and roll acts or whatever they are, um, and the tattoo fits firmly into that. To be able to take an Olympic stadium for four nights is a that's right. It's a pretty big deal that's for right. any of us. This is a mega event. We touched on the performance structure and how there's some new things every year, but also a lot of tradition attached. Uh, how much flexibility do you have in terms of the contents of each show? I know each show starts with a fanfare. Is that correct? Yes, it does. I mean, we do stick to a sort of frame. So you'll expect there to be a fanfare to start. Mm-hmm. You'll expect at the end to have the poignant sounds of the Lone Piper with with the sound of a single pipe tune, a you know, a, a mm-hmm. lament drifting off in in the wind. Mm-hmm. There's always the Black Bear and Scotland the Brave. But between those places, you can tell almost any sort of story. Every single year will have a different story. There's normally some important national anniversary yes. or a whim of the producer's mind, which is great <laughs> fun. So we can then recruit acts to fill that narrative mm. or we're able to have acts that we know are coming and, you know, uh, international acts will queue for three, four, five years really? to find a slot in the pattern, and we're really proud of that. And then lace it together with a lovely story. The the, the narrative is is one of music too, so we have an integrated score from the beginning to the end, and, and we time the show effectively off off the black dots. Well, if you're after acts, David, I'm available to sing. I'll, I'll leave my card. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> Where exactly do the performers come from? They come from all over the world, and uh, we've had now performers from uh, 58 countries, um, which is fantastic. And we're now people are ringing us up uh, and saying, you know, we'd really like to come to the to-do. When can we? When can we come? And we we're now, you know, just having to say, well, look, we haven't got any space, but. The lovely thing about my miserable job, I mean, I have one of the great <laughs> jobs on the planet, is that I do get to travel all over the world. Mm. I go to some amazing places to pursue acts that people may not have seen before. All military acts? No, far from it. Right. And in fact, the military, you know, the military band and the military music, military bands are the same in musical terms mm. around the world. What's really interesting from my point of view are the folkloric mm. acts and if you unbutton the tattoo, military forces, armed forces, should represent and, and be representative of the civilian societies that they come from. Mm. So we work very hard to get a representation for that. So I might go to Mongolia and get a, th- a throat singer. <laughs> I might go to Papua New Guinea and get a guy who plays just brilliantly on a wooden drum. Yeah. I might come to the centre of Australia to listen to two... Um, extraordinary pieces of wood being knocked together in a rhythmic way by some special person here. Mm. And all of that, every single place has its own special culture. And and we can draw very, very deeply on that. What's life like for an individual performer as part of the Royal Edinburgh Military Tattoo? What's the commitment? What are the perks? Yeah, well, the commitment is is vast because whether you're a dancer or a singer or a musician, there are... There are days, weeks, months that will go into you bringing your craft to a world-class standard. And most importantly, we we recruit 
at the very top end. Mm. So we're looking for great pipers, great drummers, great dancers, great traditional musicians, and those that come from abroad of a, of a similar quality. So you'll have reached the top end of your particular discipline. Mm. Um, you'll then get the music um, from us uh, some months out, which will have the particular pieces that you're going to play. Some of those will be your own, but you're also being invited to play in other people's parts as right. well. You then will get yourself ready with your group, you normally fly into Edinburgh, or in this case, Sydney, yeah. on a Saturday night. You get a briefing on a Sunday. You get a moment to recover from the flight. Yes. Uh, you can look outside your place of accommodation <laughs> momentarily. And then on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, you rehearse. And right. You rehearse like fury because over that time, with a cast of twelve to 1,400, you have really got to motor to bring it all together and integrate. And then normally... Thursday, you're in front of a live performance. How do you do it, though? Do you, do you rehearse in sections, or are yeah. you up there on a megaphone? How does it work? Yeah, we have a little bit of all of that. Yeah. Um, so each act will get its own place to sort of sort itself out. Mm. Uh, we take a look at them normally at the beginning. They then take themselves away, rehearse their own piece in a, in a different uh, a different place, and then bring them back later. And gradually, over the three days, we'll bring the mass military bands together, the mass pipes and drums, and gradually the show builds. We know exactly what the narrative structure is, Everybody knows the part they play. And then by the Wednesday, we're playing it end to end. And it normally, you'll, you know, it's it's quite clunky when you do it for the first time. But then over that day, mm. we take lots of time out of the show. It gets ever more refined. And then by the time you're in front of the audience on the Thursday, it should be smack on 100 minutes uh, and away you go. And military precision. One would hope. (laughs) (laughs) One would hope. And, uh, of course, you know, because it's all live, there's no recorded music in this. There's a wonderful jeopardy in it. Mm. Um, There are things that happen every night that you can't predict. You just have to adapt to those. That's great. The location we've mentioned is stunning, Edinburgh Castle over there, the dramatic backdrop. I know when it was staged in Melbourne a number of years ago, you had a life-size replica of the castle's facade uh, to recreate the look and feel. Can we expect the same thing in Sydney in 2019? Yeah, you absolutely can. Um, we're very proud of our castle. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, I mean, it is immense. And it looks so realistic. It takes uh, between four and six days to build it at one end of the stadium. It's an astonishing set. Mm. Um, it's then painted by extraordinary people. Mm. And it looks as if it's made of stone. How amazing. And uh, so you go up, you know, people who, who get onto the, the field of play can go up and actually quite difficult to, to recognize that it's made really? of wood and not stone. So it's like a gigantic theater set. It is a huge in a stadium. Yeah, and it's I don't know, it must be it must be 80 to 100 feet high, I think and, and uh, several hundred feet across. Before we get on to to you and I suppose your history, you've mentioned the audience before in Edinburgh. The thing that struck me, only 30% of the attendees are from Scotland. Yeah, we That's have. That's the appeal. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And we're incredibly lucky because a great many of our audience come from all over the world. Mm. Um, last year, I think we sold hundred tickets in 103 countries. Mm. And um, there's clearly an appeal in Scotland. The British audience is is pretty big, mm. but there's huge audience from here in Australia, travel, really? Canada, New Zealand, across the Commonwealth. And um, what is amazing about this is when we go on sale on the 1st of December every year, 
Um, we will probably sell half of the run, probably about 110, mm. 111,000 tickets in just one day of trading. That is incredible. And that is, that's rock and roll numbers. Yeah, that's so right. So, you know, you don't feel quite 59 at that point. You feel a <laughs> bit younger. Well, I suppose it's a destination event, and I suppose with all that international interest, it makes a whole lot of sense to take it on the road, despite the enormous logistical, uh, I guess, complications that would come with that, which we'll come to in just a moment. Just finally... You're a not-for-profit organisation. That's right. We're a charity above mm. all. And there you go. We've got four companies, uh, all of which um, are, are related to the charity. We, we try now to give a million pounds to services and arts charities every year, which is fun and interesting for us. But it, it's got a very important ethos underneath that, mm. um, looking after retired servicemen and women, but also the arts um, in Scotland and abroad. I'm speaking with Brigadier David Alfred, who's the CEO and producer of the Royal Edinburgh Military Tattoo. David, tell us a bit about you and, and your military history. Well, that's not very distinguished, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> I, had, I mean, I've served for, for 34 years. I, I joined the Army in 1978, mm. um, joined the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards, um, Heavy Armour Regiment, mm. served with those through the sort of normal appointments of, of a young officer. Mm. Um, I've, had a, I've had a wonderful time. Uh, I enjoyed the regiment very much. I was very lucky to command the regiment and, and later 51 Scottish Brigade based in Stirling. Um, missed out on, on you know, a number of the great conflicts. Mm. Um, Kosovo was really my sort of outing, really, but I missed Iraq and missed Afghanistan, mm. um, apparently doing important jobs, frustratingly. But um, a lot of my colleagues, of course, had a very you know, tough time over that period. Mm. Um, I was a Colonel Army recruiting. I was a director of studies at uh, the Royal Military College of Science and did various other bits and pieces. But I've had a lovely and interesting uh, military life and of course as a cavalry officer you are always invited to run the party so mm. I have been responsible for running parties <laughs> from the very beginning and I'm sort of still doing that now. Which makes you perfect for this role because you are just the eighth producer in 68 years of the tattoo which is quite remarkable really. It's a gig that people really want and then when they get it they hold on to it. Yeah absolutely. How did you get the role in the first place? Well I had a, um, uh, a great friend uh, and mentor who's a previous producer Brigadier Mel Jamison uh, rang me up, and I was still serving um, down in support command, mm. doing um, a charming um, and terribly important staff job, which wasn't really, um, <laughs> you know, tickling my imagination terribly. And he said, you know, the producer of the tattoos just arrived, you, you should run for the job. And um, I said, well, I, I'm still serving. There's no way I can sort of do that. Mm. He said, no, it'd be fun, and you do it well. So I went in for the competition. Um, the headhunters weren't that impressed with my CV. Mm. When I sent it in, I had to sort of, you know, sort that out and eventually find my way through a whole range of interviews, 47 candidates, I understand. Wow. So I was very lucky. And eventually bobbed out at the bottom and then had to have a sleepless night at home talking to my wife about... You were only given 24 hours yeah, to well, decide. Yeah. And we decided that um, this was the thing to do. I'd always wanted to go into the rock and roll industry. Really? Um, after the army. I thought that'd be fun. Pretty close. Uh, and we are pretty close, <laughs> actually. Uh, yeah, the music gets close sometimes, which is fantastic. How does your training in the military and, and the management of such a large amount of men and women, some on tours, thousands, how much does that training assist you in preparing for an event like this? Yeah, a lot. You, you don't have necessarily the skills of an artistic director mm -hmm. um, or a producer in the, in the civilian sense of the word. Yeah. Um, but if you're naturally creative, I think that finds a tremendous outlet. In the military, you're used to dealing with very large-scale problems. And as an armoured uh, commander, 
um, your your forces might be spread across certainly tens of miles and, mm. and in some cases hundreds of miles. So scale doesn't really bother you. Synchronicity, of course, is yeah. all about the military mm. because you're trying to bring the military orchestra to bear with great effect on whoever happens to be your, your problem of the moment. So it, it's just putting lights and sound and computers into that mix instead of helicopters and tanks and artillery and, mm. and engineers. That's not too big a jump. But what you do have to learn very quickly is all of the skills of, of the world of commerce. Mm. Um, those are things that you may not pick up in the military. And um, I've got an amazing team back in Edinburgh, you know, with a finance director, a head of... How of big my, is the team? Well, it's it's much smaller than you might imagine. Yeah. We just literally hit 30 people. Um, it was 17, I think, when I first joined the company. And about 10 of those are, are the box office. So right. tiny, and the production <laughs> team's only, only five. So, um, but of course, we'll partner here with the Michael Castles Group yes. and Seven West Media. And so we've got some great partners here in Australia. How big a role is music in the military? It's it is part of our life, and if you, you're lucky enough to come from a Scottish regiment as I do, mm. you know the pipes are they're part of your day. So Revali will start. You'll hear a piper. Commanding officers' orders will be signalled with a piper. The end of the day and all of those things. Now other regiments will have bugles that that you know will will chart the path of the day. Mm. So you do have a lot of music. My regiment's particularly musical. We used to have a military band and pipes and drums. So even if you weren't a musician, and I'm not a musician, I play the CD player quite brilliantly. <laughs> but it but you sort of you you learn to appreciate music. You learn to appreciate pipe music in particular. You've uh, said you were expected to appreciate music. Yes, you absolutely are. And I remember very well my first you know, dinner night in the regiment, and we were all given a brief by a, um, an ex-pipe major, then a major in the regiment, and explained to how pipe music was part of our life and how we treated it with respect and how we treated the pipe major and how we treated the pipers and the drummers. Mm. And you sit with great reverence at dinner as perhaps the best piper in the regiment will play a pibroch, and, and you learn how to appreciate great mm. pipe music. Now, I'm not enough of a musician. I can tell you the difference between sort of okay and good and very good. <laughs> of course, you have to be a master of the instrument to tell the difference between very good and excellent. And and that's where I find myself a bit challenged sometimes. Well, I mean, luckily for you, in charge of the Royal Edinburgh Military Tattoo, you only get the best of the best, don't you? <laughs> we do. So that's right. Yeah, we sort of do. So I'm a lucky chap, really. You've been in the role for seven or eight years now, and... and what it seems to me, just from reading up on you, is that uh, you want to leave a legacy. You really want to take this to the next level, don't you? It's a very exciting prospect, this. Um, it does, it, my role has demanded, first of all, incredible humility, because you're only um, a caretaker mm. of this thing. Yes. To have a show that has lasted as long as this is special. Lots of lots of people rely on it working really, really well. Yep. There are a lot of jobs involved, a lot of people, and people with enormous passion too i mean i had supper last night with a lady from a band just here in sydney and she spoke with such passion mm. about what it was to sort of come to edinburgh so you have to be very mindful of that you have to start your day looking in the mirror very coldly at how you perform but in order for a business to be sustained to grow it has got to grow it's got to have energy it's got to have momentum 
And the live music business and the event business is now extremely competitive. Mm. It's accessible to everybody. And most of us will go to great rock and roll gigs and we will measure our musical taste in that. Most of our young people will now will take music from grime on one end of the spectrum right through to opera. Mm. So they understand the standards. The tattoo has to keep up with that. It has to be innovative. It has to be better. It has to deliver spectacle that people don't expect, stories that they're not anticipating. You talk about spectacle. I mean, you've added fireworks, laser technology this year, of course, lighting and projections and special effects, all that sort of thing. Are you conscious of the need to appeal to younger generations? Yeah, it's so it's so important. You put your finger absolutely on it. You know, the average age of tattoo audiences in the past, you know, used to be of our parents' generation. I, yep. I speak now as a parent <laughs> of, a, of a 30-year-old. Yes. So I think... Um, it used to be, but we're watching, we're deliberately, our audience needs to be young. Yeah. And what's amazing for me is when somebody, in particularly in that sort of age group from sort of late teens through to early 20s, comes and enjoys the show just because it's an amazing spectacle. All the music, I mean, how many rock and roll bands have 800 musicians yeah, on stage? That's right. And what you can do with that, with a full orchestra, a choir, all the normal stuff that a rock and roll band and all the pipes and drums, 250, 270 of them, and all the military bands, some of whom are extraordinary. In there will be a brilliant virtuoso trumpet player or somebody who's brilliant on the accordion mm. or on the pipes. You can do some amazing things with that. There's nothing like being there in person, in the stadium, of course, and if you can get there, you will. But you also have a significant international exposure via television. Um, I saw last year it was televised to 40 countries around the world, something like up to 300 million people seeing the event worldwide. Do you think about the TV audience or do you put on the live show and then the TV just sorts itself out? No, I wish um, that were the case. And mm. you rightly pointed out there's a tremendous difference designing for, for live yeah. or designing for television. And sometimes you'll watch an event which has been exclusively designed for television and it doesn't work so well emotionally in front of in front of a live audience so what happens in edinburgh and we have some amazing partners in this is we'll start by building the show the storyboard its scenes rather as you would a play mm. um then we'll start putting the layers on so the first layer will be a narrator's layer then there'll be a sound layer then there'll be a lighting layer then there'll be a projection layer then there'll be a special effects layer and for television, of course, they like nice breaks. They like to be able to edit your show from, say, 100 minutes down to, you know, 59 minutes. A BBC hour is 59 yes, minutes. Yes. So they like to be able to edit. And that's really tough because if you're playing orchestrated music, there is no easy place for the blade yes. to fall in the edit. So you have to sort of think that. And if you're organizing for commercial television you know where is the commercial break mm. you know all that sort of stuff needs to be thought about now actually we have brilliant partners in bbc um who helped me in my story and learned i've learned a lot from i've grown a great deal over the last eight years but as we say there is nothing like being there and a lot of australians are able to get there in october 2019 we'll get into the nuts and bolts of that in a minute but how often in the past has the show toured? Uh, we've done four overseas before. And that's so, all in 68 yeah, years. Yeah. So th this is a very, very special event. Oh, it's it's huge, this. And it requires, I mean, it, it A, takes a number of years to plan it so that all the international acts are available to, mm. to, to show up in a 
in a place like Sydney at the right time of year, but also to find the right partners. Yeah. Um, you know, you need a group of people who are sympathetic to what you are, who are impassioned by what you do. And um, that's we, we've really got that here. I'm really excited with the people we're working with here. There's no better than the Michael Castle group, I can <laughs> tell you that. In the Australian production, you will be flying thousands of people over? Yeah, we will. I mean, the cast will be, you know, the, the, clearly a, a great many people here yes. from Australia and, and from New Zealand. But we're also bringing in, a, the cast will be between twelve and 1,400 strong. Incredible. So there's a lot of people to accommodate and, and square away. That is a lot of flying, a lot of accommodation, a lot of feeding, a lot of transport. Yeah, a lot of tartan. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But we will be seeing local performers, people from the Australian Defence Force in New Zealand as well, you say? Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's some tremendous musical pedigree here, both in the pipes and drums, but also in the military bands. But th there's also some fantastic stuff here. Um, some of the indigenous music here is extraordinary. Mm. And I, I must say, I find myself getting more and more inspired by um, by by that. And if you can imagine looking round from Australia, you look west, you see, you know, the, the, the east coast of Africa, mm. you then sort of come northwest and you're starting to look towards Europe. You're then picking up Inda, India, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, all off towards China and the Pacific Islands on, on, on the eastern side, and then south to uh, New Zealand and, of course, you know the great white spaces south of this great continent. Yeah. Without getting political, is the government supporting this, the New yeah. South Wales yeah. and federal government? And, you know, that's what's an absolute pleasure because um, the New South Wales government has been incredibly supportive with mm. us. As, as I said earlier, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to have an event like this come to a city. It drives all sorts of, of commerce. Um, we try, whenever we go around the world, to appeal to partners in defence, mm. in foreign affairs, in commerce, business, enterprise, and so forth, in tourism, of course, yes, and, and then in the cultural arts and heritage sector. So all of those elements in Sydney are extremely vital. That's such a good point, isn't it? That yeah. it does t touches on so many areas of society. Yeah. And the, but the nice thing about us is that um, we like to try and make sure that everyone gets a slice of the action. So mm. defence should really enjoy taking part in this. Mm. They should see huge benefit of it. The international community, whether they're high commissions or ambassadors, there's a tremendous sort of international cultural diplomacy piece here. Business people will be interested. Well, what a great place to take business oh. people out for a bit of a night oh. out. And then you do some great business in the margins. You develop a, an opportunity to get to know people, to develop a bit of trust. As soon as you have that, then you start trading and, and doing business. Tourism, obviously. And, and then there's the cultural heritage and arts piece. You know, mm. there's some really interesting people here in Sydney that we're talking to over the next few days. And the great thing about this show is that, you know, you could go to various theatre productions and think, oh, I like that or I don't. You could go to music concerts, I like that or I don't. This, there is nothing else like it. Well, I don't think so. I mean, I would, it is, it's going to be extraordinary because oh. stadiums anyway are incredibly exciting spaces. They're A, very big, but they also have a very particular power in the atmosphere. Mm. And this show is about bringing people together. And I really hope that when they come and see the show in October, they will get a real sense of they are part of it. It's actually telling an Australian story rather than anybody else's. And you're bringing it to Sydney, an Olympic city. Um, I see in 2020 there are plans to go to China. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's the gag. And um, our strategy <laughs> for growth has got us going abroad now every year from every next year, year as wow. well as Edinburgh. 
And that's really important for us because it keeps us stimulated. It keeps the company growing. It's really challenging to do this stuff. Um, we it's good learn, for your frequent flyers as well, as I, I, th- I think it is. Yeah, it is quite good, actually. I do a lot of miles. Um, but, yeah, that's the plan. We, I've just come in from Beijing, and I've had a week there. We've had some amazing conversations with Chinese government and uh, and with the various city authorities. And then we'll we'll go to Canada in 21 and then, you know, wherever our imagination takes us. How incredible. I mean, on a serious point for you personally, while the travel may seem glamorous and you get to travel the world, you spend 80% of your time away from home. I do spend a bit of time. I, um, I've i come from a military you know, family. I've been married now for you know lots and lots of years. Probably because she doesn't see you? She doesn't see me. <laughs> I, I don't have a way for but, you know, she, uh, my wife's had nine... Well, she had 32 houses in her life. Really? She's an army daughter. She's had 19 with me. Wow. So she's now settled... And um, actually, so I do, I weekly commute to Edinburgh as well. Wow. So I, I know lots of airports. I'm pretty good on airports. Can she unpack the boxes now? Yes, yeah, she can unpack. <laughs> Never move again. Never move again. How much longer are you going to do this for? <laughs> I don't know. That's an always thing. You always worry that you sort of run out of creative va-va-voom. Um, the nice thing is, as, as a you know, as a civilian chief executive, you'll have to make your numbers work, show mm-hmm. to work. I have a pretty hawky board that watches me pretty closely. <laughs> I think so. Uh, I'll sort of see how I get on when I come to my appraisal at the end of the year. You have nothing to worry about. You are doing a magnificent job, and we can't wait to welcome you back here in October 2019. The Royal Edinburgh Military Tattoo returning to Australia, October 2019, presented by the Michael Castle Group. Four performances on Thursday. 17th of October until the Saturday the 19th of October 2019 tickets go on sale in April but you can register today to get on the ticket wait list Edinburgh Tattoo Sydney.com.au is the place to go Brigadier David Alfrey thank you so much for your time thank you so much and thanks to everyone for listening I'm Luke Davis and I'll speak with you soon on the next Michael Castle Group podcast